What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. Excited that you guys are here. We're going to be talking all about syndications today, bringing back a really fun guest, Dr. Kathy Carroll. But before we dive in, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is Panacea Financial. They provide banking for doctors because it was founded by doctors. They have a nationwide loan, checking, and savings program, and those options are designed specifically for doctors and doctors in training. Their specialized suite of financial products gives med students, residents, even practicing physicians greater freedom to forge through their futures and at affordable rates. By reducing financial barriers and burdens, Panacea Financial ensures that doctors have increased capacity to serve their patients and the population at large. Do you need a good home for your banking needs? Well, check out PanaceaFinancial.com. That's PanaceaFinancial.com to get started. And that link will be in the description of this show that you're listening to us in right now. All right, and I'll just give a general disclaimer, like I always do. This is not investment or financial planning or any other type of advice that you could think of. This is educational tips and tricks or cheesy dad jokes, whatever you want to look at. But I'm excited to bring on Dr. Kath Carroll to talk all about syndications for this month in real estate. And next week, we'll be talking all about taxes and how real estate affects your taxes. So this show is likely going to be a lot more fun than next week is what I'm telling you, but it's still important. So Let's continue Real Estate Month and bring Dr. Kathy Carroll on. Kathy, welcome to the show. Excited you're here. Thanks, Ryan. It's nice to be back. So we're going to talk all about syndications today. And I know that we've talked about syndications before and had you on. And you regularly contribute to the blog over at financialresidency.com. So thank you for that. But we're going to talk on syndications. I think it'd be helpful if everyone's got a one-minute primer of what is a syndication. Sure. Well, you can think of a syndication as a way to buy something that you couldn't ordinarily own. So suppose you see a huge property, like a 400-unit apartment complex. That's probably not owned by one person. Most likely a syndication, which is a group of professional investors, has purchased that and brought in other investors with them. In a sense, you are buying into a piece of an investment and the investment is the business that is running that piece of real estate. And how are those usually structured? I think it'd be really helpful to just get a high level of who's in charge and how do you, when you put money in, who's the bank and is there a bank? I think all those like high level details would be good. Sure. So generally speaking, there is an LLC or a limited partnership and that's going to be run by professional real estate investors. We'll call them the, the general partner for now. So the general partner is going to own and operate that corporation and is going to take care of all of the details of this investment. Then you, the individual investor, you choose to invest with them, but just like the name implies, in a limited capacity. You're not making decisions. You're not dealing with the details. You are providing cash. Now, there is a bank, right, because one of the best things about real estate is leverage. So generally what's going to happen is the general partner's will be raising whatever amount of cash the bank requires, maybe it's 20%, 30%, and then taking out a loan for the remainder. So when we, I want to be that one person that owns it all, by the way. That would be nice. Let's make that happen. One day. Probably not one day. Too much risk for me to be all in one piece of property because uh, these properties are not cheap. Like the last deal that you were participating in was Element 41. I know we mentioned that a little bit on air. I was a big fan of that deal. Well, how big was that property? That was 80 million, eight zero. Yeah. 
I don't think I'm going to have 8 million, much less 80 million. And if I did, it wouldn't all be concentrated on one thing. That is the beauty of, I think, syndications. And before I think we go further, why don't we do a quick pro and con of investing in syndications? Because the whole idea of at least the premise of this exact episode is for all of you to listen and go, yeah, syndications are not for me. I'm going to do something else in real estate or I'm just going to ignore it and just maybe buy REITs. And for some of you, I want you to be able to say, hey, this sounds cool or interesting. I want to look more into it. I think this might be right for me. So I think a pro con might work. So what do you want to take the pro or the con first? Mm, Let's do the pro. All right. So what are some of the pros of investing in a syndication? Let's say I have Of course, I'm going to be the planner and put my planner hat on everyone. Like I've got all my retirement accounts saved for, I've got my emergency fund. I haven't, you know, taken on credit card debt or personal loans. Yes, I still have a mortgage on my primary residence. That's fine. But I've done all my other things. So with that little caveat, I've now got some extra money. Let's say I've saved up $50,000. I want to go into a syndication on a 400 unit apartment building. What are the pros of me investing that 50K in an apartment building via a syndication? Well, one of my favorites is the diversification. So you don't want all your eggs in one basket. Most people are very familiar with stocks and bonds, but real estate is one of those asset classes you should consider. And the beauty of diversification is these things don't all go up and down together or at the same time. So if you look back over time, Real estate, in particular multifamily, and I'm talking about the giant apartment complexes, it's not very strongly correlated with the stock market. So what that translates into is the stock market is crashing. Hopefully your real estate is not. And the opposite is also true. So that diversification is critical for any portfolio. Yeah, we talk about diversification inside of stocks, right? I want to own some maybe large cap, mega cap, small cap. Now we do that via index funds. You might even own some REITs, which gives you some of that real estate exposure. Some people call those real estate flavored stocks, but guess what? It's still exposure into real estate in that market, but hopefully you're diversified across different asset classes. This might be why some of you own bonds, right? We talk about fixed income and why you might own that if the stock market is potentially going down and experiencing downward volatility, you own bonds that might cushion that and maybe they don't fall by as much. But having diversification outside, like owning this, yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. And what else are some of the pros that we could get by investing? Well, of course, it's the money, right? The returns. It's a little hard to discover this on the internet because it's hard to look up returns on real estate. But historically speaking, real estate, specifically multifamily real estate, has outperformed the stock market when you look back in time. And I'm certainly never going to say no to something that performs well if there is a place for it in my portfolio. Yeah, we'll talk a lot on the metrics and financial stuff in a minute because we get questions on that. And I know you probably get way more questions on that stuff than I do, but we'll go through that. What else are some of the pros on investing? Well, I love that the syndications give you access to something that you normally wouldn't have access to. As we mentioned, neither you nor I are going to go buy an $80 million property. We don't have the cash. We don't have the connections to make that happen. But if you invest in this world, it's giving you the opportunity to get the kind of investments that normally would be closed to you. Yeah, I really like the exposure of being able to be a small fish in a very large pond and being able to have access to some really, really high quality properties that I would have no other business ever buying. 
as I would never be able to afford them. So I think I agree. That's a super cool pro on this. Do you have any more pros or should we switch over to the cons? I'd say my other pro is cash flow, right? I love cash flow. And traditionally, and this of course changes with the market, the type of asset, you've been able to get anywhere from six to nine percent in cash flow from these multifamily syndications. And that's very hard to find. It is. I love the cash flow piece as well. And for some of you that are trying to earn quote unquote passive income, the idea that this is probably the most passive part of real estate that you could be in, but it's still not passive. You still have to, you know, vet the GPs and you still have to vet the deals, which we're going to talk about both of those in just a second. But once the deal is made, your money has been wired, the deal closes and you're starting to earn cash flow. It is really nice to get that. But COVID has taught us something. And so we'll get into the cons here that I have a couple syndications I'm invested in and some of them have chosen to stop having their quarterly distributions because they're shoring up their defenses financially and making sure, hey, look, bad debt's coming in. We're not getting paid on a couple of these. We've had to evict. Things have happened. And so they're not wanting to basically push out all their cash to the investors and they're withholding it, which of course lowers my immediate short-term return but I'm hoping that those properties get back on track. The other part of that though is a deal like Element 41 that we're still getting cash flow because it was underwritten really well and it was already with a lot of known variables in COVID. And that has been quite nice to receive that. But there's some big cons in this and I want to really highlight these because it's fun and sexy. Real estate is everywhere and everyone's like, this is the greatest thing ever. They don't like talking about the bad stuff. So Let's talk about the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And there always is bad stuff. Anyone who tells you something is guaranteed or safe, you should just run away. The biggest bad things in syndications, the first one is the liquidity. These are illiquid investments, meaning you can't just go sell it. If I buy Tesla and Elon Musk says something that I don't like, I can just go sell it. Well, once you're in the syndication, you're in until the end. You don't have a way to sell this to another investor or even to sell it back to the general partners. So it's a liquid. Once you've committed, you are committed. So in COVID times where March of 2020 rolls around and the market is down 30, 35% in the stock market and you're going, oh my goodness, I want to sell, which you shouldn't be doing. But let's just say that you're panicking a little bit and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to get out of all my investments and start unwinding these things. You can't unwind this. There's no getting out. You are in it. You have picked your horse and jockey, if you will, you finish the race. No matter where you place, if you win or lose, you're finishing it. There's no getting out. And that is a very, very big deal and something you have to understand before you make that investment. There's got to be like half a dozen of these. Easily. I would say the other one that some people really get stuck on is the timeline is unclear. So I'll use the Element 41 deal as an example. Most of these deals say we're going to finish in eh, maybe five years. You buy the property, Little by little, you fix it up, you raise the rents, and you sell. But maybe it's five, maybe it isn't. So for example, if I had been in a syndication that was supposed to finish in the middle of COVID, you don't want to be forced to fire sale a property because you're on a hard timeline. So maybe it's going to be five years, maybe it's six. And you know, if Jeff Bezos backs up a truck full of money at the end of year one, you're not going to say no to that either. But maybe that's not when you wanted the money. Or maybe you really have something in five years where you have to have the cash of a kid going to college. It might not happen then. The deal might end at year six. So you have to be comfortable knowing that you're not necessarily going to get this back on your schedule. 
let's move away from real estate for a second and talk about a good estimate, right? We're all trying to figure out when are we going to be financially independent? And you might say, I need to be financially independent by age 60, but I'd really like to be independent by 55. And as you're starting to work through and COVID happens and you're 54 and you lose 20, 25, 30% of your income, your practice shuts down because you lose a contract and now you got to do something else. Those are unforeseen circumstances that didn't come up. And I'd like to be at 55 might not happen. And that's the same thing with this type of investment is they're giving you their best estimates on a bunch of figures that are going to happen 60 months or more into the future. They can tell you, we know it's going to cost to buy and our fees to do that. We know what we're going to estimate as repair costs or maintenance or keep the property going or marketing. But those are again, estimates. And the longer you go out on any estimate, the worse it becomes because you don't know what the future holds. So that's a real big one is to understand that you're locked in and you're locked in for hopefully the amount of time that they say, but there's no guarantee in any of this, but there's definitely no guarantee in, oh, you said five years and it's five years from now. It might not be the case. Right. Which kind of brings us to the the next con is the control issue. You don't have control here. You have to let that go. And that that bothers some people. Now, realistically, you don't actually have control over many of your investments, right? Again, I don't control what's happening with Tesla. But people are accustomed to thinking that they can control what happens with real estate because they tend to think of direct ownership. And that's not the case here. You aren't making the decisions on when the property is sold, what renovations are done, how the rents are going to be raised. So you have to be okay with letting the professionals handle that for you. Yeah. If you want direct control, you need to buy a single family home like we talked about last episode and not go into syndications. And if that's a big deal and a deal breaker for you, you're not going to be investing in this type of stuff. I look at that as a con, but also a pro because if I'm doing my due diligence correctly and I've found the right partners that I want to and the team that is around me, and they're going and buying the right type of deal that I look at myself and go, yep, I like this. I want them to do all the work and I want them to make the best decision possible. And I don't want to jump in behind the scenes and be able to tell them what to do and not to do and have any say in it because I'm not going to be the most educated person. They are living, breathing, dying this property and their other potential properties, and I'm not. This is supposed to be passive for me. So I think that's a con, but also it could be a pro depending on how you look at it. Yeah. At this point in my life for me, that's definitely a pro. And I think the last thing which people, it can be a struggle to wrap your head around this is it's not a small amount of money to get into a syndication. You can get into a real estate investment trust, a REIT for under a hundred dollars maybe, but most syndications have a minimum somewhere around 50000 So that's a struggle for some people to accept the idea of putting that much into an investment. Absolutely. If someone is willing to say, hey, look, but it's your first time and maybe we'll go lower to $25K, I mean, that's up to them if they want to do that. That's not a red flag. But if it's something that you said to get in, it's only $5,000 or $1,000, you're probably not looking at a syndication you're probably look at some crowdfunding site. There's a dozen of them out there and I am not a fan of those. So don't confuse the two of those where you're coming in as a sophisticated investor or maybe it's open to all of them and not for accredited investors only. Those type of properties are, I think, not very good deals. And the reason that they have to go and get money from a bunch of non-accredited investors is because it's not a very good deal. And that's how they usually end up on those crowdfunded sites versus 
This is a lot about networking, who you know, how it works, and being able to find good, high-quality deals. And I think that maybe becomes a con on this because I get a couple of questions. I'm curious, Kathy, what you'd say. And I know there's a little bit of bias here on this, but how do you actually find and vet someone that is doing syndications? I get asked that a lot, and I generally point them to you because that's who I work with, right, as I go through you. And I think it's hard to find that person. It is incredibly hard to find that person. It's a couple of different reasons. I won't bore everybody with the legal details, but there was a point in time where you couldn't be very public with how you were raising money. The SEC would not allow it. So you couldn't publish much online about syndications. So the wealth of data you're used to finding on the internet, it's just not going to be there. And then the other reason is if you're a good syndicator and people have found their way to you, those folks don't necessarily want to give up the name. Some of these deals have a wait list. They only need so much money for each deal. And once those spots are gone, they're gone. So people don't necessarily want to share their favorite syndicator. It is a struggle and it is a lot of time and networking to try to meet the right people and figure out who you can trust. Yeah, it comes down to trust. That's a really tough spot because like I tell you guys, the financial industry is not your friend. There's a lot of products that are out there that are really made to just be sold and they're not in your best interest. I'm not saying this is what syndications are, but just always have a skeptical hat on when you're talking about anything to do with money because there's a lot of ulterior motives and motivations and conflicts of interest. And just ask a lot of questions before you do anything with your money, regardless of what investment it is. So you feel very confident that you're making the right decision. Kathy, I asked you prior to recording, what are maybe some of the biggest struggles that you get asked, because I know I get a lot of questions and mine were a lot of the finance pieces and it was good to hear that those were yours as well. So why don't we go over how someone could really understand the financials? Let's say they found someone they're going to vet, they've got presented a deal and that's usually where we see the deer in headlights of what am I looking at? How does this work? So why don't you maybe go through a couple pieces on the financials? Mm -hmm. I think this is tough for somebody who is new to real estate because you do have to get into the weeds a little bit. Physicians in particular really don't get training on billing, finance, anything to do with money. You mean they're not all CFAs prior to becoming an MD? No, no. Some people didn't go that route. You could argue they're smarter than I am, but that's a whole nother show. Potentially. Potentially. But definitely you look at these brochures and they all look fantastic, right? They all talk about, oh, this is my average annual return. This is the cash on cash. This is the IRR. And you really don't know what those numbers mean. So I do spend a lot of time working with people explaining what these numbers are and why you can't necessarily compare two deals just based on the numbers alone. Because it's not just the numbers, it's the deal. It's the risk in the deal. So when you're looking at all these numbers, you're looking at a number that's been adjusted for the amount of risk that you're taking. And that's something I've spent a lot of time working on education with the docs I talk to. It's really important to understand that if you're going to get a return on your money, I don't care what it is. It could be 0.1 in the savings account that you have that used to be a high yield savings account. And now that's just a joke of a concept to, hey, I'm going to invest in these really crazy land deals and go tax liens or whatever. I'm going to earn 30% a year, whatever it is. Whatever that return is, that is the amount that you are going to be given for the amount of risk that you are about to take. So a high-yield savings account is going to yield 0.5%, I think probably is where Ally is at this point. And that's because it's really safe. Like it's FDIC insured. 
your money's probably not going anywhere. And if FDIC insured needs to come out and that fails, everything is going to be failing. So don't worry about anything else because we're all in a lot of trouble. Whereas some of these really high risk deals that you're maybe doing development, like my parents do, they develop commercial property and there's a lot of risk and a lot of things can happen and break and go blow up and cost overruns and everything when you're developing a whole building. And that is why the investors that work with them are making 22, 25, maybe even upwards of 30% because there is a ton of risk in this. So Kathy, you mentioned IRR. Why don't you just talk a little bit about what IRR actually is? Mm -hmm. So IRR is just one of the measures you can use to figure out basically how much money you're making. So that's your internal rate of return. You could think of it as if you were getting the money during the course of the syndication and reinvesting it throughout the life of the syndication. Average isn't quite the right word. It's a horrible formula. But if you could take all of that and put it together, roughly what were you making? That's one way to measure return, but it blows people up. So I usually encourage them to look at things that are a little simpler to understand because at the end of the day, what you're actually trying to do is compare this to other investments. So something that's a little bit easier to wrap your head around is the average annual return. So that's basically taking all the money that you're going to get and the total capital you put in, dividing that by the number of years. So roughly every year, what did you get? That's a little more approachable for some people. And it is for lack of a better term, that is good enough most of the time to get a feel for the different rates of returns across syndications. Because again, these are estimates and they will likely never hit those numbers. Whether they're off up or off down, obviously you'd like them to be more conservative than not, but that number will likely never be hit. It's just their target, their benchmark that they're trying to obtain. And this these returns will likely be more than what you would expect to earn over a long period of time within the stock market because there's so many more risks, right? All those cons, the liquidity and everything else that goes with it. And you need to be compensated for those risks. If you're not compensated for the risks, and let's just say it had an equal return comparable to the stock market, why would you ever take all those extra risks? You shouldn't, you wouldn't. And therefore they'd have to raise the amount of return that you are expected to get in order to be compensated for that risk. A couple things I want to make sure we go over on the finances really quick is really looking at what other red flags maybe do you see with assumptions or even talking through like the rent rolls and getting into the nitty gritty? Mm -hmm. I think the assumptions are probably the area where you can find trouble spots. That's one of my red flag areas. So what I always tell people is all projections are wrong, but some projections are useful. And you can take a spreadsheet and make it say anything. So if you come up with some absurd projection of what your rent increases will be, then yeah, everything's going to look great. So what you need to do is really go through, it's called the T12, it's the trailing 12 months of financial data, and see what are they assuming the rents are going to be? What are they thinking about for the expenses? Do they seem reasonable compared to other things I've looked at? Are the increases huge? Are they small? Because very small changes in those assumptions will completely change your rate of return. So a lot of the pieces that we've been talking about today, plus a whole lot more, are actually made available in the course that you guys have put together. And I was lucky enough to be able to have some access to see everything that you guys are doing. And this is not even the tip of the iceberg. There is so 
much content inside there that is super helpful in learning how all of this stuff works and how to vet a sponsor and how to look at these rent rolls and some of the assumptions and just everything you need to know to actually make your correct first investment in a syndication, I think is super neat. So why don't you give an overview of the course and what you built? So the course, a couple of us who have worked together in the past, we all got together and decided to put something together because we get the same questions and this can seem very impenetrable to somebody new to the space. The course is designed for somebody who has either zero understanding of syndications or is at the intermediate level. And it takes you from A to Z, from the very basic of what is a syndication to let's talk about property managers and taxes and how is this structured, an LLC, an LP. We have a lawyer come talk. Way more detail than you will hopefully need to make an intelligent decision. And the goal is once people go through this course, they will be able to compare these syndications with some level of confidence and make a decision as to whether or not this is for them. And there is not just some video work. There is some live stuff you guys are doing. What exactly is that? I haven't looked at it. So it's six weeks of video content, which you can do at your leisure. But then we, of course, want people to have an avenue to ask questions. So every week we have a happy hour or an ask me anything format where we do have some planned things we're going to talk about, but it gives the students a chance to just ask us whatever they want. It may have nothing to do with the course. Maybe it's a property they looked at. Maybe it's a syndication. And of course, we're not going to tell them what to do, but we can help answer their real estate questions. And the end result after taking this, so someone goes through, they take the course, they ask a bunch of questions, they show up at the live calls, they're participating, they're doing all the good stuff. What's the end result of doing all of that? So the end result is that they can feel like they are educated. They are confident. They can look at a couple of different syndications, go through the financials. They know what to ask. They have their checklist of what they need to be sure they understand. And then they can compare these syndications and choose either with the help of an advisor or choose for themselves. So we want people to come out of this feeling confident. I've worked with a lot of people who even when they've done syndications, they don't feel confident. It was a friend of a friend and maybe this was a good idea. I don't know. I don't like that people are investing that way. So the goal of this course was to educate people so they don't feel so lost. They feel intelligent, prepared, and they can think that, yeah, I've chosen this indication that's right for me. Yeah, definitely from what I've looked at. Again, I haven't joined the live stuff, so I apologize, but I'll forgive you. I've liked a lot of the video content and there's just a wider rate of people talking. So it's not just one person hearing one person keep going on and on. There's a lot of good content by several different people. I think if you were to take it, would probably get a ton of value out of it. If this is something that you're looking at doing, we want you to understand that not everyone is a real estate investor. Not everyone needs a real estate investor. That's why I talk about not everyone needs a financial planner. Everyone is different. Personal finance is personal. But if you're interested in the stuff, hopefully this episode has crossed you over to, hey, I think syndications are cool. Or it's done the exact opposite because that also is cool. Hey, this sounds horrible. I want nothing to do with that. And maybe I'm going to go into a different form of real estate or I'll just stick with my real estate flavored stocks as they, they call those REITs. Kathy, where can they find more about you? I know everyone should know at this point, you do a lot of writing for us at financialresidency.com, but where can they find the course and hear more from you? Sure. So for the course, the website is it's mfmasterclass.com. So you can certainly go check us out there or I am at Rika, 
ryca.io, ryca.io. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. All right, everyone. Hopefully that was super helpful. I love having Kathy on talking about real estate. Like I said, next week, we are going to have all about taxes and how it affects your real estate status. So probably not as much fun as this, but let's jump into our financial malpractice, financial horror story. We've got Michael Relvis from MR Insurance on a regular here for helping us out with a lot of our insurance needs. You can reach out to him at financialresidency.com slash MR Insurance. Michael, welcome back to the show. Ryan, I'm glad to be back again. I don't know why I said it in like that game show voice, but I'm I'm excited you're here. So let's see what you got for me today. Me too. Me too. So this one's an interesting one. Probably, I don't know, a good seven or eight years ago, I think at this point, but it was significant enough that it stuck in my mind. So we have these conversations every day, right? We get younger physicians or of all ages, really, but specifically with the younger ones looking at term life insurance. And one of the biggest decisions to make when you're buying term life insurance is how long will you need the coverage for? What type of term do we have to go with? Is it a 20 year? Is 30 year too much? Is 15 years too short? I'm not sure why it works this way, but more often than not, people will go to the shorter side, right? So they'll assume, okay, I probably don't need this for much more than 20 years. I think I'll be financially independent in 20 years. Should be fine. Every once in a while, you get somebody who says, you know, I really only think I need this for 10 years or 15 years, which is totally fine. Everybody has their own thoughts on this and is entitled to do what they think is best. But from our perspective, it's funny to hear something like that coming from someone who just recently got married, is about to finish up their residency, is in one of the lower max income specialties, tells you that they're planning on having three children, hasn't had one yet, and they tell you that they only need a 10-year term. It just doesn't make logical sense. So We try to motivate people to really think about that, not just in terms of, okay, are you going to be financially independent or are you projecting that you're going to be financially independent in that time frame? but also thinking about other facts. You don't have any children yet. You're planning on having two or three. Okay. Well, if you go with a 15-year term and you haven't had your first kid and you're planning on having two, are you really going to be comfortable letting all of your life insurance drop when you have a 10-year-old? Most people wouldn't. Even if they are financially independent, it might not be a need anymore. But there is something that mentally people don't accept. They just don't want their life insurance to go away with a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old in their home. And so we try to portray that, giving information, allowing them to rethink their logic and not pushing or anything like that, but allowing people to rethink. Well, this is an example of a business continuity case. So three owners who own this business, they all had private term life insurance coverage. And again, for business continuity. So the concept was each owner would have a policy. And if there was a premature death, the policy would pay the business. The business would then be able to cover whatever additional expenses they had, buying out that person's interest in the business for the surviving family. And they decided to go with 15-year terms. It might've even been 10-year terms, which would have been really short. And over that 10 or 15-year timeframe, one of the owners became overweight, uncontrolled diabetic, by the way. So health was a really big issue. This person was basically uninsurable for life insurance. Nobody would write him. Even if he wanted to pay more, there was no option. He couldn't buy a new policy. So when we got to the end of the term, the need was still there. Nothing had changed. They had initially bought the shorter term because it was less costly. So they said, okay, we'll go with the less costly option, thinking that they would be able to just re-up it if they needed it. Well, this was a case where they weren't able to do that. He was uninsurable. The only option in that type of situation is to convert the term policy. Converting term insurance can be very expensive, particularly with some companies, because the only conversion option they give you is a really crummy one. They know that the only people converting are those who are uninsurable. Therefore, they basically 
surcharge for that conversion policy. Long story short, they ended up converting this policy and having to pay a $27,000 a year premium beyond in order to keep that coverage in place, which was important to them. They obviously found value in doing it. They wanted to maintain that coverage, but gosh, that's a costly mistake. They could have just gone with a 20-year term or a 30-year term when they first did it. Maybe it would have cost them, I don't know, $500, $700 more per year, something like that. And they would have avoided this huge, massive expense. That's a really expensive mistake to make. So the lesson to be learned is basically when you're trying to calculate how long you need coverage for, I'm not saying to overdo it. I'm just saying to be a little bit conservative, really take a step back, think about what the need might be. Try to put yourself in the position of what you're going to feel like 15 years from now, 20 years from now. Are you really going to be comfortable dropping all that coverage or not? As much as we don't want to overpay for insurance, we don't want to overdo it. It would be a much worse situation to be in a case like this where we're now having to overpay 15 years down the road because we undershot it. We didn't give ourselves enough time. Yeah, I can just see some of the guys out there, even ones that I know that are not clients, but just other physicians I know, they tend to go the other way and they're like, well, I need $8 million of coverage. I'm like, no, you need three. Like you don't need to go overboard. But as soon as you said business continuity, I was like, uh oh, I know where this is going. Like the writing's on the wall. $27,000 though, and they would have been way better off just thinking a little bit ahead, having the right person say, hey guys, you plan on being a business in 15 years? You might want to look at this uh, a little bit longer. This isn't just for those that have their own practices. It's a good thing to think about just as you're buying the policy and you're doing the right thing, just make sure you're getting the right product for you and your situation. And everyone's different. Some people it is going to be 15 and some people it's going to be 30. So appreciate you. Anyone looking for coverage, whether it's term or disability coverage, reach out to Michael, financialresidency.com slash MR insurance. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. If the podcast has been of value to you at all, do me a huge favor and share with one other physician or physician family. Literally just click like copy link and shoot them a text. You don't have to tell them what it is. Hopefully they'll figure it out, but it would be awesome if we can get more people feeling more confident about their finances, kicking ass and taking names. All right. Before we finish out, don't forget to give one more shout out to our sponsor for today's show, and that is Panacea Financial. And they're there for all your banking needs as a physician because they're built by physicians. They understand your needs. And a PRNN personal loan that was designed specifically for physicians and physicians in training to go along with their full suite of banking needs. So check them out at panaceafinancial.com. Open a new account today. They're a division of Primus and member FDIC. And you can check them out in the description of the show quick, easy link for you there. All right. I'll see you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.